Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White. Happy to have you with us and happy to have a full crew here in the studio today. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Philip. Hey, guys. Dustin. Good morning. Brian. Good morning, Brad. So we're happy to have everybody's been kind of traveling out and about a bit, but we've got everybody back today and we're going to talk about some of those travels. We, Several of us went to the Academy of Veterinary Consultants meeting recently and there was some interesting information, Philip, that we want to get your thoughts and opinion on. We're also going to follow up a little bit. We've talked some about how to treat cattle on pasture, but I want to extend that conversation and really get you to find out what are more of the details between how you make those decisions. And then finally, we'll wrap up with a follow-up listener question following our conversation on EPDs and genetics in bulls and how to pick those bulls, manage bulls for a single sire breeding pasture. Before we get into those topics, guys, I don't know what your dinner conversations are like at your house, but sometimes at our house, it comes down to a, which, which would you rather? So the other night, and I wanted to find out from, from you guys, which of these, would you rather be a samurai or a ninja? Because they're both, they're both pretty, wow. they have some good skills, but you they're pretty some, different. You, you had some deep conversations at your This is today. not as easy to solve as you might think. All right. So the, huh. Does this come up at your house, Bob? No, it never has. Ever. <laughs> <laughs> never. So, and I, I'm probably fairly ignorant about both of these uh, skill sets, but I'm going to say ninja just because, you know, I, the turtles kind of made it cool. Mm. Not, not the same kind. Not the same it's kind, kind of, yeah. I guess. Philip? I want the sword. I want the samurai. Oh, both have a sword. Yeah, the samurai uh, sword is bigger. It's, See, it's I've, longer sword. I've been down this sword. road before. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of like, yeah. I still want the longer sword. That way I can reach farther. Okay. Samurai. Dustin? I'm going to go with Bob. I think the ninja, going back to the turtle's comment. <laughs> <laughs> can we sneakier and kind of sneak around? Yeah. Brian? Uh, I, I'd like to say samurai because I, I think that's the honorable answer, right? Like, this is a good guy. Yeah. I'm not all excited about killing myself though just because somebody else dies so i, yeah. I think i'm gonna go with ninja too we don't actually have to do this we, no. we're just this is a what if scenario okay so. all right okay. i'm not sure you were gonna qualify <laughs> <laughs> did you think we were gonna let bob be a ninja uh, <laughs> maybe yeah he could he could be a ninja he's pretty yeah he sneak around so let's uh we'll move on to more scientific topics the academy of veterinary consultants is a group that meets several times a year bob you're very involved in that organization and a lot of times updates on some of the newer health trends some of the new things that are coming out to be aware of and some of the research that's applicable a couple good talks at this conference and i'm going to put it in broad terms of relative to gut health and diet and the impacts on cattle health. Tell, tell us a little bit about what you heard there. Well, I, I do think maybe I'll just start by saying, so this was a veterinary meeting and some of the primary speakers that we had were nutritionists and some of them were veterinarians that were also nutritionists and some were nutritionists without being a veterinarian. But the, the tie between nutrition and cattle health is very tight. And you see veterinarians that spend a lot of time with cattle try to become at least fairly knowledgeable about nutrition and usually have a couple of nutritionists on speed dial. Now, <laughs> keyword try. Yeah. Okay. So the nutritionist is sitting to my right and he's rolling his eyes. But the point being that some of the things that, that, that we see as symptoms of respiratory disease of uh, digestive disease, so bloat, diarrhea for digestive disease or respiratory disease 
a lot of them, there is either a nutritional component to the cause and or a nutritional component to the recovery. And so some of the things that we talked about was the importance of just the, the physical aspect of going off feed. So spending some time, basically you can call it anorexia, you know, short-term anorexia, short-term feed removal or something like that. And it could be that because of trucking and, and other reasons that they are off feed, it could be because they're sick, they go off feed for a while and how that negatively impacts the digestive health, which then can, you know, you can start to get into this vicious cycle of problems. So that was an interesting talk, really talking about how important it is to, you know, so as a veterinarian, I'm treating the respiratory disease, but I really may be wanting to monitor and do what I can to uh, influence dietary intake, get, the, get them to eat the feed. So that's what a, big, a big component. And, and I think that's one of the things, you talked about the relationship between feed and health. And Philip, you've done some work looking at acidosis. Would that concur, would some of the stuff that Bob say concur with, with what you found? Yeah, well, we think there's, there's a connection between acidosis and some of these other elements in feed, especially in feedlot cattle. And it's been shown in dairy cows to have some negative impacts on health. And we think that there's a relationship when cattle have acidosis, there's inflammation, and it may be a predisposing factor to respiratory disease. And we know that it's uh, linked to uh, liver abscess uh, development and, and that kind of stuff. And, and so we're really trying to, to start to dig into how that works and how that changes in diet and acidosis or being off feed or whatever affect gut health and this idea of leaky gut, which I think we've talked about a little bit on previous episodes, so and how that then impacts overall health of the animal. And so we know that diet changes affect that the microbiome in the gut, which then affects the gut integrity and the function of the small intestine, large intestine. And, and we know in humans that there's a big connection there between that microbiome and overall health. And we're starting to try to dig into that a little bit in cattle. All right. So when you say microbiome, tell me what you mean. Microbiome is a term that basically refers to the overall population of bacteria in the, the gastrointestinal tract that <clears throat> encompasses just all the different species instead of referring to one species of bacteria we're just saying here's the all the different species and here's the profile of those species in the gi tract every animal and every individual within a species has their own kind of profile of the different bacterial species in their their gi tract and so when we say microbiome we're referring to what's the profile of the different bacterial species in that animal yeah, in the tissue. animal, not just it, not just the GI tract, but we often talk about the GI microbiome or mm -hmm. other areas. But it, it is the entirety of all those bacteria, good and bad, that are with mm -hmm. us. Because sometimes bacteria get a bad rap, right? Yeah. You can't always blame the bacteria for everything because they get a bad rap. But there's a lot of them out there that are actually kind of helpful. Yeah, and I think when when you take it back to well, what do I do about this discussion? Well, it's it's Remembering that a sick animal, we don't just treat a sick animal with an antibiotic or a direct treatment. We need to we need to make sure that the diet, you know, so a well formulated diet, the forage quality is good, that it's mixed appropriately, that if you know if you're doing any grinding, that that's appropriate, that the environment is really good. So there's no impediments to getting to the bunk. The water quality is good. So basically, what I think some of the take home was 
when you diagnose a disease process, you need to be very holistic in making sure that that animal has a great place to be. So the environment is good, the feed is good, and <coughs> all of it works together to improve the outcome. My ticket was uh, avoid bad days. Avoid, yeah, that, that's that, a good that way we of saying think, uh, You think about, it is not just about having the big things right. You're trying to avoid every bad day you can. Because if they had bad days, that's it, what led to future things problems. Things spiral out of control. Yeah. So the, the fewer bad days that a calf can have in his life, the better off we are. Yeah. Well, and we, and we talk about, I, I talk about antibiotics a lot on the podcast. So we talk about, you know, they, the beneficial effects of antibiotics and, you know, as far as treating bacterial infections. We talk about resistance as a negative impact. But one of the things that we're learning, as we learn more and more about the microbiome, we learn more and more about antibiotics disrupt the microbiome. And so we know, at least on the human side, there are a couple of conditions that if we give a human patient an antibiotic, it actually can end up worse than when it started with the initial bacterial infection. So I, th I think as we learn more about what, th then this goes into the bad days, right? So if you have one bad day and then you get treated with an antibiotic, you may end up with another bad day because now we've disrupted the microbiome and aren't really sure how to correct that and get that animal back on track. Well, and the cool part is we've just learned how to, as, as scientists, to evaluate the microbiome because previously, and Brian, you spent a lot of time in the, in the bacteriology lab, we would culture and you look for a specific pathogen. And, and we would answer the question of, is this pathogen there or not? And now we're starting to answer questions like, what what does the entirety of that population look like? Is that a fair contrast? Yeah, no, I, yeah, it's absolutely like you said. We've we've got the tools now to do it because, and I I don't know exactly what the percentage is. I've seen different estimates, but it's really high. Like probably more than fifty percent of the bacteria out there, we aren't able to culture in the lab. And so now that we've got tools where we're looking for DNA and genomes, we're seeing things that we never knew even existed as far as the bacterial world goes as part of. The microbiome for people or animals or whatever yeah i think the more we learn about that the the better it will be and and bob you highlighted there were there were several good talks on gut health there were also some on on limit feeding or managing that intake and i, I think w one of the other take homes so besides no bad days was we need to have a plan for both how to start and maintain cattle on feed because that's an, another part of the equation they're not going to self-regulate. We've talked about this before relative to minerals and other things. They're not going to know what to eat any more than you and I innately know, right? If we're given a smorgasbord, I'm going to pick out what I like, not necessarily the vegetables. Yeah, and, and again, I think there's been good work over, over many years looking at the positive and negative aspects of limit feeding. Basically, limit feeding is only delivering to the pen a little bit less than what the pen could eat. And then usually, and then increasing the nutrient density of that. So they're still getting all the nutrients they need just in a little bit smaller package. And there are some benefits to that. The, the, the thing that you also find out is it requires probably a little bit closer monitoring a lot of times. So you increase the, the management, the oversight to get some of these benefits. Excellent. I, I totally agree. And I think good, good sessions, good summary. And one of the other things that I want to kind of shift gears and talk a little bit more about, we do weekly... We do an Ask the Experts podcast that's, that goes along with Ag Today that's, that's out of our K-State communications group here. That's a five-minute segment, and usually we have a discussion, a debate. It's available on Wednesdays. 
But one of the last ones that we did was a debate on from a listener question on how to treat cattle on pasture. And there's some real challenges. And, and the options thrown out were we could treat them with a dart. We could treat them by catching them, roping them in the pasture. We could walk them to a facility for treatment or we could load them on a trailer and take them in, or we do nothing, right? So those are the five options, none of which is perfect. And I wanted to follow up because, Brian, you had, you had a really good point actually after we got off the air. Uh, you may have had a good point on the air too, but you had one <laughs> off the air, but it was relative to being sure that you get those animals caught in some manner. Tell us, tell us yeah. a little bit what you're thinking there. Yeah, and I think kind of to sum up, that ask the experts you know bob and i kind of agree that darting is probably our least preferred method although there are situations where it's nearly unavoidable and one of the one of the downsides to darting that we didn't talk about was you know that's that's a remote treatment method right i i'm not up close and personal with the animal and there are a lot of times where the we skip the examination if we're doing that right so and and i think there are some cases very specific cases where especially when we talk about lameness and foot rot right if i see a cow on pasture limping and my assumption is it's foot rot which should respond very well to antimicrobial therapy and you know i can make a case that in that darting is appropriate but there are also other diseases so like a foreign body so nails rocks things like that there there's diseases called hairy heel wart um, it could be that either, either one of those has progressed to what we call septic arthritis and all of those are much more complicated than foot rot and without that proper examination which i don't get with darting i really am I'm, a i'm probably not going to get efficacy out of my drug b i've probably done the animal disservice by delaying the appropriate diagnosis and treatment well the hard thing is i might see an initial bump or response so for example if there's a foreign body in the foot there's an infection around it i give an antibiotic i might see it get a little bit better for the short term but you're you're saying we've really got to get that animal in and examine them and be sure that we're on the right track and i could make the same case for some of our respiratory disease. I could make the same case for some of our other diseases where the clinical signs that we see of a sick animal aren't specific to a certain pathogen in many cases. In a lot, in probably a lot of cases, actually. So, so that, and that was a point we didn't get to bring up during the discussion before that I think Bob and I agreed afterwards that, you know, getting the right diagnosis is really the first step, which starts with a good examination of that animal and which just and that's the other benefit to trailering or bringing the animal to facility is you can do that much more safely without injuring yourself or the animal and then once you have that diagnosis then obviously you've got the animal do the treatment yeah i think you know one of the things that and the reason we had this discussion is we know that darting is popular with some producers and probably the reason is because and it's and it is my least favorite way to treat cattle on pasture but to be very honest my favorite ways such as trailing them to a facility roping those types of things require more people and better trained people and a lot of times that that is my problem is 
you know, I, I had clients where we had some really good cowboys and they could get a animal into a trailer. They could get, you know, a calf restrained because they had the, the talent and the number of employees to really make that work. And that allowed more options for treatment. And, and I'm just a really reluctant. So I, I won't say I would never recommend darting, but I'm, I really, I don't, I don't prefer it. But I recognize the limitation of a lot of times our other options require better labor than I have available. Well, the other thing about darting that we didn't discuss on the podcast, on the Ask the Expert, was with when you're using darting as your method of drug delivery, you are really limited to which products you can use. And there are times where the one or two products that you can use logistically in a, jar, in a dart because of the injection volume may not be the right product to use. So, and, and that kind of goes back to the diet. If I've got the right diagnosis, I can get the right therapy, which may or may not be the one that fits volume-wise into a dart. Well, and so you're talking about volume. That's the other thing that we, there was some work done here at K-State, and I think it was also done at Iowa State or someplace yes. else as well, where we don't always get the volume that we, you know, we may have drawn up five cc's into the syringe, but that doesn't mean that's what goes into the animal. Some of it ends up on the skin, some of it stays in the syringe. And again, if we know that in, if, if you don't provide the full dose, if that's really what's necessary to get the result we want, we don't get the result we want. And so there, there are several reasons I'm just not a very big fan of darting, although I know that's not necessarily a popular opinion. Well, and, and I think one of the things that comes into play here is cost. And you think about the ease, cost and convenience, right? So does it actually cost me less if I go dart one, if I end up having to get them up later and retreat them or have problems? So you, you have to weigh that, weigh that part out. As you, as you think about the cost of actually treating cattle on pasture, because some of the other options you guys are talking about takes, takes more labor and I've got to have facilities, right? I got to have a place to take them to. And depending on my pasture situation, that could be, that could be challenging. But I think your recommendations overall is be sure we know what we're dealing with. Be sure that we're using the right treatment and we get the right dose in the animal, which none of which are a given if I'm doing it, if I'm trying to do it from remote. And sometimes it may be harder in the short term, but to actually gather the labor, to, to take the time to get an animal in a, in a trailer or walk to a facility. And yeah, it's harder, but it's, it's better for a lot of reasons, better outcome for the health of the animal, less negative. Cause every time we treat an animal, there's the potential for negative. You can have an injection site lesion, you can have broken needles. You can, there's, there's always the chance for something negative. And I want the positives to far outweigh the negatives. And that's not just, and a lot of times you could eventually get to an economic cost of those negatives, but there's just the negative aspects of retreatment, consumer problems. There's a lot of costs associated with that. One negative I did, the NCBA, they do these beef quality audits every so often. And if you take a look at the last one in the cow audit, in the 18, 19% of the packing plants that they surveyed, that they did find darts. And so... That's another negative aspect. Of wow. It. And that was in cows? That was in the cows. Cattle. Yeah. Cows. Cow, cows. In the cow yeah. audit. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So that, that's one of the other things, too, is, and, and that came out in some of these other studies. They don't always fall out. And then certainly that would be a foreign contaminant. And then I, I would go back to, you look at beef quality assurance guidelines. There are specific injection sites, which with a dart is going to be really challenging. 
So excellent point there, Dustin. And, and I appreciate you guys bringing that up to light. And I, I know it's a, a challenging topic, but I think worth discussing the merits, pros and cons back and forth. I did want to follow up briefly. We had a listener question when, when we talked the other day and we were talking about expected progeny differences, breeding pasture plans. We talked about a single sire breeding pasture and we talked about some different rotations we could do with that sire. But the question was, what about composite bulls and, and why wasn't that addressed? So Philip, maybe give us some insight on what is a composite bull and, and how might that be useful? So a composite bull is a crossbred bull. Um, but it has a specific combination of breeds of particular interest, and it's consistent. So it's a consistent combination of those breeds. So take, for example, um, Brangus. Brangus is a composite bull because it's a, it's a consistent combination of Angus and Brahmin, but and then they have developed that over time and turned it into its own breed. And so that... Composite, though, has advantages in that it is <clears throat> a crossbred animal, and so it has some hybrid vigor or some heterosis that then could be transferred to the, when crossed with the cows, has increased the hybrid vigor and heterosis in the calves, and that bull has some hybrid vigor of its own because it's a crossbred bull. So in a single sire pasture, the issue is trying to get consistent crossbreeding with a consistent genetic combination. I can do crossbreeding in one sire pasture. I just get a different bull every few years that's a different breed, and I've got a rainbow herd of, of offspring coming out of there because I'm using a different breed all the time. But I want consistency. So the composite bull allows me to get the advantage of crossbreeding with the heterosis and the hybrid vigor that is consistent year after year after year and consistent across all animals in the herd. Yeah, I think the, the listener had a good point in that we probably should have mentioned uh, composite bulls as an option. I think it's, it's, it's something that has been kind of evolving over my career. And one of the places where one of the disadvantages to a composite type of bull in the past was you couldn't get those expected progeny differences. Those were maintained within breed registries. And so you, you would get the advantage of heterosis or hybrid vigor, but you lost some of the knowledge about the prediction of their offspring. Well, that's kind of changing. The, the particularly some of the the planned composites now have EPDs available, which make them really pretty attractive, particularly for that person that wants a very simplified breeding system. You don't get quite. We didn't get our maximum heterosis with composites, but you get pretty good benefit from that hybrid vigor. Mm. Yeah, it's better than a straight bred, definitely, um, but it's not maximum. <clears throat> but also. What genomics, that genomics is what allows us to, to get these EPDs on these crossbred animals or these composite animals. But also, those genomics allow us to even look at the percentage of heterosis within that animal. And so then I can select the individual that has a high level of heterosis within its genome to improve that hybrid vigor. Yeah, and you guys are talking about heterosis. So the, basically, that combination gives us some vigor in areas that may not be highly heritable. Right. So we think reproduction, reproduction is one. Is, health is another one. Health is another one. And those those are areas we don't have high levels of heritability and other traits. So there is some real value there that leads to overall productivity. So I think a great question and good follow up. Appreciate you chiming in. If anyone else has a question or follow up to one of our conversations, you're always welcome to send us an email at bci at ksu.edu.